Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknesum. Sir, how are you this evening? I'm well, David. It's been a beautiful day here. I'm frantic with preparations for the solo art show at the Center on Contemporary Art in Seattle, which means not only finishing off everything uh, and packing up the car, I've got to drive all the way to Seattle because I'm going to be there for some time. So there's lots on the mind, but but the mood is good. How are things in Oklahoma? They're good. Considering the stories that you've told me recently, I'm very interested to hear about your road trip to Seattle. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Well, you can imagine. You, yeah, know. you, you got some I, I, you got some vibes around you, dude. Well, you know, and I have some plans, too, because I really want to uh, get the front end, at least, of a documentary about the art show with parts to be done up there. Uh, including a workshop, no less. Uh, but I'm also going to do a lot of dictation and really try to uh, not close out the memory book, but I think I'm really on to something that is uh, just incredibly exciting and in that it brings together thoughts that go back certainly to the 1990s, you know, it, it, and a lot of really hard reading then that I, um, there was a period between like 94 and 96 that I was, you know, I was really on fire then uh, and able to take on board a lot of, it was, it was a real second wind surge, you know, like that 18 to 21 or 22 to 25 year old era, you know, but that pumped up and with a lot more focus. So I've got that. Um, I'm taking a lot of the trick bag, including the, the blow guns. I am, I'm going to look for some venture capital while I'm up there. Uh, it's not tech, you know, but it's, it could be tech, you know, there could be some things that, that work out into that. And so there's just a ton of stuff. Meanwhile, I have scouted out locations in Boulder City that if you are ever here when I'm, you know, I'm sorry I'm going to miss your visit to Vegas, but I think we could do just a sensational documentary with locations that are just, you can't find them anywhere else. So I've got my shot list almost of like at least where we'd be for some for this kind of conversation, but just in some unexpected uh, backgrounds that are really out of at least the, the the weird American dream. You know, they're they're as we say Lynchian. You know, they're just mm. or they're just spectacular, but also that weird edge, you know, that weird edge of Nevada, uh, which is not Utah and it's not Arizona. It's something all its own, you know? It's I, cool. Yeah. That's been one of our goals since we started the podcast. Almost, almost, well, I mean, counting episode zero, this is our 150th episode. So in two weeks, will be a three-year-old podcast which is pretty cool that's, that's amazing one of our goals. 
that is one of our really, goals. That is really amazing. The ground that we've covered, the changes that have happened, you know, well, I was going to say particularly in your life, and I think that's true, but nonetheless, my move to Boulder City was, and my escape from uh, the drug dealers and, and uh, gun runners was exciting. Uh, so it's it's been a journey, lost yeah. explorers, you know? I think that's what really makes podcasts cool, especially when they last as long as ours do. And by the way, most podcasts, do you know how many episodes they do? No, well, I would assume like literature is not very many, you know. How many? Two. Really? Oh, yeah. that well, most don't make it past two. And then yes. to make it a year is a huge accomplishment. And to toot our horn, but to toot my own horn, this is episode 150 of Lost Explorers. I just posted episode 89 of Agitator, and I did 157 episodes of my interview show before all this. So all yeah, you've been doing it a up. while. Yeah, all that added up. I'm almost at 400 podcast episodes, and I'm almost okay at it. <laughs> I'm I'm almost okay. Uh, I'll get back to you when I've done a thousand. That might be well, when I can actually consider myself a broadcaster. I I think that's a really really healthy attitude, you know. Um, and this is. Uh, to be forever learning and, and, and to always be a student. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I met a, a woman at a, a Lynchian uh, nightclub recently locally, which is the, the oldest speakeasy in the state of Nevada. And she's a sign language uh, expert and she was signing to the songs and later just sort of leaving. Hi. I asked her, you know, if, um, you know, if she was, if she considered herself good at sign language, she'd been a professional for, you know, 30 years. And she said, no, no, I'm, I'm still <laughs> learning. And I like that. And I think that's what you're saying is that it's just, it, it's a lot of, uh, well, as Miles Davis said about music, it's a lot of missed notes, mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot of missed notes. And if you don't really accept that part, I don't think there's, you really, you know, you're doing much, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I agree with that. I think that when I started writing books, I was 23 years old. So my first book came out in 2010, 13 years ago. I was very excited to get a Chris Sacknesson blurb. I yeah. got a Paul Tremblay blurb and I got a Stephen Graham Jones blurb and I thought I had just arrived in the writing world I thought oh here I am yeah and I was right I remember that wonderful well yeah that was a I think you know that's the way it felt then you know yeah yeah that really is the way that it felt and then I came out with my my second book now is 10 years old. The French version of it is seven. So seven years ago, I was in France being wined and dined by Rivage, which is the biggest crime publisher in France. And I thought, wow, I figured it all out. And the subsequent seven years have been a process of learning that I will never figure it out. And you know what? 
that being, that is such a, a more comfortable way to live than, because if you think you have something figured out, it's on a pedestal and being on a pedestal means it can be knocked off the pedestal. I don't even know where the pedestal is anymore. I'm wondering. Well, you know, my thought about this and it I'm I'm in this psychogeography uh frame and because that's one of the our biggest interests but it's also the focus of of the art exhibit. It's called Ghostscapes. And I keep going back to and I've mentioned this on the show many episodes ago about when I was into my map collecting mode. So I, I take cartography pretty seriously. I learned celestial navigation, which is like trying to learn Sanskrit. You know, it's really difficult. Um, but I I got a map from not that old, but from really crucial. That this is kind of what was what made it really interesting. It was a British map from the 1830s. Uh, which is, you know, doesn't seem that long ago, really, but it was a portion of Central Africa. And there's a large section. Does this ring bells? Because I have mentioned it. Yeah. There's a large section in this really fantastic uh, writing that, I mean, if you were a, an editor doing, you know, adventure books, this is the, the, the writing that you'd use, hand done. But it, Area unexplored because of ants. Because of ants, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and my the reason I mention that is I think that what I'm coming around to, and I'm I'm this is one of many ideas I'm teasing out of the memory and alertness book, is that what happens if you assign the seemingly giant amorphous category of the unknown as that, you know, the area unexplored because of ants. But you've at least in conceptual terms consolidated what might, you know, an enormous array, a mosaic, an exploded mosaic of things that are unknowable or things that you just don't know, which is a really uh, that takes up an enormous amount of mind space, yeah. you know, because you're breaking it down into, you know, you keep running into things you don't know and you think, oh my God. And it becomes this linear list of things, this gigantic inventory that you have no way to really process. And you just keep, you know, the list just keeps growing and, and just shooting off. Why not instead of this linear, sequential, discrete, noun particle thing why not just have one lovely cloud chamber blank space on the map category of your unknown you know it's personal yeah. to you yeah and that that includes then mm -hmm. some psychological decisions that you're making with agency and sovereignty of things that you at least tacitly don't really care about. You know, that's the part of the unknown that is a huge confusion because for people like you and me and our listeners, I think the unknown is an attractor 
and something that we want to explore and have positive vibes about. But I think there are a lot of people walking around and, and no fault to them who really say the unknown, I don't care, you know, just don't care. And, but I think that's a, a blank space on a map in a different register than what I'm talking about. I'm talking about really conceptualizing that and making some, some pretty deep personal, uh, mm -hmm. on, you know, action decisions about how you're framing the world, the universe, existence. Yeah, and I think that that is an important defense mechanism against derangement. And I think derangement is the major symptom of our time. I Whether agree. That is uh, Trump derangement, Elon Musk derangement, Joe Biden derangement, uh, climate derangement, COVID derangement. This these kind of derangements that people get into whenever the new the newest thing comes down. When you were talking, I couldn't help but think about what a what a helpful tool what you were just talking about having this uh, area unexplored due to ants part, portion of your own mental map is in the uh, accelerating age of artificial intelligence and how this continues to ramp up and ramp up. And this could, I think, be a subject for a future show, but it does seem to me that <clears throat> the there was a story about a chess master who was playing a computer no, 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 no. I'm sorry. Not a chess master, a Go master who was playing a, a computer in Go. And the computer was pretty much unbeatable. The only way that this Go master won, and he was only able to win this way once, was by playing the absolute wrong moves every time. Oh, so he, beat, he beat the AI by doing everything wrong. Right. And I think that. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, a big a big thing to keep in our minds right now and why it's so important to maintain this curiosity in this cloud, both as an antidote to derangement, but also as a defense mechanism against this coming artificial certainty. Because what I think a lot of people think of when they think of artificial intelligence is, is an artificial certainty, a way that facts are going to be codified and put into this solidified way that is really well and truly only going to be used as a control, uh, as a control mechanism for our brains, right? So I think that uh, Lost Explorers is an important show in that respect, not to get too high on our horse about it, but I do think it's important to get together every week and practice thinking together and practice doing all of those wrong go moves together in a safe space mm. <laughs> in order to, and I'm dead serious about this, build up our natural human capacity for doing the completely, you know, beyond algorithmic wrong thing. Right. I think that's very, very well said, David. Very well said. It ties in with the theme of our psychic defense manual, which is going to come out soon. It's absolutely essential to, as you say, I love the idea of practice thinking together. That's a lovely, lovely idea uh, and, and a lovely uh, 
waveform of word and idea. I think what is really interesting is to draw on some of the the many uh, sources that we, we've we've dealt with some some river sources of inspiration in terms of Dadaism, outsider art, uh, going back to learning from animals again, the whole DIY crystal radio idea of, of not just following the experts and the talking heads on CNN, but investigating things for ourselves. So there are some real practical things that we're doing here, but I think you're absolutely right. And we will, uh, we must uh, do some episodes addressing the AI revolution that is upon us because in a quiet and insidious way, rather like gas penetrating space, I think we are in the midst of a monumental shift in culture that is every bit as profound as the Gutenberg revolution. Oh, yeah. I think perhaps more so. I do think that when we get to photography and film, I have a very strong case to make about that influence. But I think we're we're on we're in we're swimming amidst uh, a sea change of strangeness, yeah. and we all need to get together to share uh, human ideas, human modes of thinking, human psychic defense tips to be able to deal with what's what's coming down the pike at very uh, disturbing rates of speed. Very about six I'm months. I'm with you 100%. About six months, yeah. I um, I do, uh, I want to hear your, your band and your aphorism, but just to bounce the ball back to you one more time, um, that is going to be important for this show because everything that I'm seeing is that it's not coming it's already here. Absolutely. There's no question about that. Yeah. Yeah. No it's, question. It's all, it's all, and we're beginning to see it. And I got to tell you that some people look at AI with fear and some people look at it as the coolest thing ever. I vacillate between the two, but I would say that my overall perception of it is one of just, man, I just kind of feel lucky to be alive right now because if we don't blow ourselves up, and I don't think we will. Uh, this is so cool. It really is beginning to bring those Philip K. Dickian questions into our reality. Like, what does it mean to be human? Now we have to, now we have to practice and live what it means to be human. We can't philosophize or pontificate about it anymore. Well, we have to do that now. I'll, I'll point out very, very sharply what what the problem uh, is, in, or at least certainly could be. You said, unless we blow ourselves up, and I don't think we will. Well, the crucial matter right there is the pronoun we, because we may not blow ourselves up, but that doesn't mean some blowing up ain't going to happen. You know, I mean, that is a basic premise of, you know, the Terminator suit. I mean, it's, it, there's any number of ways. I mean, what's really happening that is very difficult for our human centric uh, frame of mind to, uh, 
to deal with is that the we is changing. Are you? Are we having a storm? Electrical problems? We did you see the flicker? You saw I the did. flickers. Yes. Um, we will continue this if the power goes out. We will continue this uh, and finish the episode at that time. But okay. we've had storms crisscrossing the state all day, and uh, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, it's been that. it's been really touch and go. But yeah, I've noticed. As you were speaking, I got distracted because my light kept flickering, but we're good for now. We're all okay. still here, but uh, right. we'll just carry on. And, and this is more a message to you, Chris, than the listeners. But if we if we do get get cut off, I'll text you and we can arrange, you know, sure. t- tomorrow's Gus's birthday, but we can do something. Wow, that's right. Uh-huh. God. Wow. And oh, Two, that's the big the big one, too. Wow. That's <laughs> amazing. What, what is your band and your okay. for today? All right. Well, I, I'm continuing on my deconstructionist mischief-making theme, and I'm pushing the envelope yet again that this is a band name that is contentious on multiple levels and may make uh, – their manager thinks it might make radio play out of the question. Uh, but it becomes – it'll become an acronym – uh, when, when it has to be, but the name is woman eats her penis. <laughs> Wait, don't choke. Don't choke. David. Made me spit my beard. Oh, that's funny. Oh, no. oh that, no. that was, that's maybe better than, uh, <laughs> than quacks. We can't hear you. Uh, that was good. Well, it it does it does build on the theme that I've got going. I, I've got a I've got a change up coming for uh, next week, but uh, for now, carrying on and closing it out to some extent, they are sign language rappers. Okay, we've had profoundly, but these are sign. They're 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 professional sign language people. They're they can. Uh, I got the idea the other night, obviously, but I think that. Rappers who don't talk, I love <laughs> that idea. And they have a theme, an obsessive OCD theme of promoting a radical agenda of complete disregard for all rules, laws, and guidelines of science. They're just anarchists of mine. And their album is called... Follow the silence. Oh, I like that. That's yeah. cool. Right? Right? Yeah. yeah. And they That's have a single cool. called Read Our Lip. <laughs> so. Oh, that reminds me uh, just your cool band names. And you mentioned the, you know, them being scientific anarchists. One of my favorite. Uh, one of my favorite bands growing up, they were from Baltimore, Maryland. They were called Dog Fashion Disco. Oh, I like and, that. Yeah, they were kind of a Mr. Bungle-esque group. And uh, <laughs> their first mainstream album, they had a lot of, mi- like, not mixtapes. They had more indie indie albums like Entropy and Bloom. But their first big album was called uh, Anarchists of Good Taste. Oh, I like that. That's that good lovely. stuff. That's yeah, good stuff. that's lovely. 
Okay, so we're on to the aphorism. This is a real lost explorers one. It's often said that most people don't want to think very hard. I demand that to people don't want to think very far. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I really, one of the keys to my memory and alertness book is really addressing what I call the prepositional distance, yeah. which is the crucial boundary uh, membrane between subject and object. All of those dichotomies and binary, well, really binaries that we, yeah. you and I have been talking about, including, you know, Cartesian dualism, the mind-body issue, and also building on the Lakoff metaphors we live by connection of what's a story about, you know, what's your story about, David? You know, it's, you know, or what's it a picture of, you right. know, there's always this, it, there, it never is dusting and zig, you know, the thing mm-hmm. itself it's we're mm-hmm. always getting weirdly farther further and farther away from what we propose as the subject Ooh, I like that. yeah i like that what is the picture of not what is the picture with or what is the picture to it's it's what is the picture of that's so interesting and the it's thing hard. about thinking thinking hard versus thinking far is such a fantastic everybody thinks hard Yes, it's just usually. <laughs> I think most people in 2023 think way too hard about everything, but they don't think far, and that is the key distinction. Because I I'm often very cautious about talking about my day job work, but I feel comfortable in saying broadly, generally, editing a lot of these books. Um, a lot of them deal with very base level interiority yeah how a character is feeling at any given moment does their tummy hurt does their throat hurt are they anxious are they happy are they smiling are they frowning you, you, you know what i'm talking about it's I that kind of <laughs> writing that you and i can't stand um but what i've learned from reading all of these books is that these are externalizations of their author's internal processes And what that means to me is that in these people's heads, they're thinking so much harder. If you think about a CPU, whenever you run too many programs at once and the fan starts going really loud, a lot of people's fans are going, you know? (laughs) My fan's not normally going like that. My fan's not going like that, but because I'm off, you know, I'm taking turtle steps to some something way in the distance. Beautifully said. I think that the fans are running too hot, too high, too fast, too many RPMs. That look, that really speaks to a, a few people that I know. You know, <laughs> and, uh, you know them when you meet them. You know when some people have their their fans going too fast. And there's a whole set of of side effects and downstream consequences of that, which they're living moment to moment and which are uh self-reinforcing you know i think that's the real danger and and so the inevitable thing is is some seizing up of the fan system you know it's they have made well they have if you if we stick with that metaphor what what is really wonderful about this 
is that it is so profoundly mechanical. And they have turned themselves into a mechanical system, you know? Right. And mm-hmm. and this speaks to one of the uh, great, great quotations I've got coming up for sort of the main body from, from Frank Lloyd Wright. And and from, well, actually not from him, actually. It's it's from Walter Gropius. Uh but on the on the architecture theme. So I think I think we might get to that pretty quickly, but I want to give you your imaginative challenge. Yes, please do. Okay. The working title is Electric Knowing. And it speaks to uh, some of the storm conditions you're dealing with, but often deal with in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. A husband and wife are struck by lightning simultaneously during a wild storm. When they come to, as in regain consciousness, they find they can read each other's minds. That's a tricky thing as it is. The further complication is they can't do it at the same times or at consistent levels of clarity. What happens? So listeners who tuned in last time will know this is kind of a build on the imaginative challenge scenario that I gave David last week, but that was called other bodies, other dreams. It was sort of a freaky Friday theme, a husband and wife. Again, this is electric knowing and uh, a kind of telepathy that mysteriously appears because of traumatic lightning burn. All right. Okay. Got it. Well, that was a an extended opener, but I don't have anywhere to be. So I'm just having fun. Where are we Me going too. from here? I thought um, building on our architectural theme and what we're trying to do for people who um, are maybe just tuning into this episode is we started off kind of the new year looking at what sort of paradigm shifts are going to appear and are necessary for this period of immense cultural uh, evolution, de-evolution, perhaps heading towards some singularity, uh, apocalyptic crisis, societal collapse, some amalgam of those forces we, we propose are an operation that are leading to some kind of transformation of human culture, not so much the physiological species, not that we're not interested in that, but we're very interested in a, in a cultural mindset that uh, is, is obviously taking shape with, with millennials reaching positions of authority and power, Gen Z right behind them, uh, who knows what's happening with younger people, you know, the whatever call, we call the generation after them uh, because of COVID and so many things. But out of that, we, we looked at, we have a, a, an agenda of a few sort of items that we think are, are important in terms of influence to the point where you kind of have to consider them. And one of them, 
that we thought was really significant was architecture, not only because it's so visible, so physical. I mean, it almost defines materiality, uh, human-made. We quickly get to architecture before, even before we get to, you know, extended technologies. I think we think of buildings, various kinds, houses, uh, public buildings, the difference between public and private space. It's just so huge. And then you and I also, and I think you did a, a really good job of, of explaining that and, and performing to some extent, to what extent architecture is where we get the whole notion of structure, period, you know, both in physical constructive terms of anything, of anything, but also in terms of our intellectual conceptual entities, systems, ecosystems. Uh, taxonomies. The taxonomy of, of, of biology is a really good example. And they're like our buildings, which have gone up, and we're about to get to the inventor of the skyscraper, or certainly its uh, patron saint, so to speak. Um, but hierarchies, you know, um, and that is one of the big concerns of our time, this resistance to hierarchies, when in fact, you know, you could look at the construction of an atom or a cell, you know, on up to, you know, bodies, all hierarchical, you know, and we're, I think, the first uh, generation of humans on the planet to have completely mushed all notions of hierarchy, where in the past, I would suggest that people had a really profound and nuanced sense of hierarchies uh, and kind of made their peace or at least weren't overwhelmed by them because they felt they were navigating them and, and able to make decisions about them. So we got onto architecture and we've looked at architecture in terms of uh, one of, I love the episode, the time shelter idea of thinking about how architected space is people's protection from time in the sense of, of not being able to keep time out or to control time, but to have a little bit of more sense of managing time. It's our ultimate time manager is, and I think if we look around at our, our office spaces, our workspaces, our bedrooms, our bathrooms, our kitchens, uh, we see that that is externalized. It, it is our sense of time management there. And I'm growing more suspicious of people who really embrace disorder. I, I'm always keen to know about new senses of order, but I think this the time shelter idea um, was a really great insight. And then we did an episode about architecture in terms of sacred space. And I loved some of the things that you were saying in that. And from there, we moved to the weird question of, is a secular sacred space a complete paradox? And we got into a debrief about Disneyland, Coney Island, and the concept of of the theme park. Um, but I thought for this one, we'd, we'd throw, I'd just throw out a couple of, uh, Lewis Sullivan, and I think the first name is spelled like Lois, 
was uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, mentor and really the crucial figure in American and therefore world art in terms of the skyscraper and uh, the, the Wainwright building uh, signature piece. But this is where Frank Lloyd Wright cut his teeth. And Wright was to Sullivan as Lautner later became to Wright and several other people. Wright had more uh, more influence. But from Sullivan, we get the, the famous line and anyone who's ever read any architectural theory always comes up with this form follows function, mm-hmm. uh, which is very much a Bauhaus idea. You know, Sullivan didn't get that from, from out of nowhere. And uh, in fact, uh, Mies van der Rohe um, was really, I think the influence of, of the skyscraper as cathedral. Um, and also the inventor of the idea, less is more, which is maybe what modernist architecture could be uh, seen as. But Le uh, Corbusier uh, has a line, because he's also one of these just immensely important modernist European architects. He said, a house is a machine for living. And his book, uh, Towards a New Architecture, I think is really just, uh, it's breathtakingly interesting. It's it's a better uh, lesson about what modernist thinking is than than anything I can think of almost. But a house is a machine for living. So I want you to, to have that rattling around your mind and think about some of the people that are heroes of ours that we mention fairly frequently. Buckminster Fuller, Terence McKenna, um, certainly Gaston Bachelard. uh, But this idea of a house is a machine for living. I've also been conscious of you mentioning, and I love this because it's kind of become your one of your totems in my mind the the real lawnmower real as an r-e-e-l uh the push mower david's been mentioning that on shows getting into very uh suburban dad mode you know um so there's a few things to sort of unpack there but i think that this idea of we've now moved full circle from bachelard's idea that the the purpose of the home so form follows function, is to protect the daydream. That's the quotation that we started our series, this series off with. And now, to begin this one, we've got a house is a machine for living. I like it. I wonder, the machine for living, when I think of machinic processes and machines in general i think of them being geared towards a specific purpose and within the quote the purpose is for living and i wonder what in the context of that quote living represents because i wonder how much living people are doing within the houses which are the machines according to this quote, that are supposed to be facilitating that living. 
that they're doing. What is living uh, breathing and brushing your teeth and taking a shit and eating food and going to bed? Is, is that what, what living is? I completely understand where the quote is coming from. It's an externalized protective shell, like a tank that doesn't move, that ostensibly protects you from the elements and protects you from, uh, well, from the ravages of accelerated outdoor time in terms of, you know, well, you've seen people who live on the streets, you know what I mean? Um, as far as it being a machine for living, I, I suppose, I suppose it can. Yeah. I suppose it can. I think it would really, it, it all hinges on that word living, doesn't it? It's, it really depends on what that word means. Well, I certainly agree with that. I, I would say that, that in, in rhetorical and poetic terms for me, the machine, the word machine just commits that idea and that aesthetic so completely that I don't think it can be recouped from that, uh, no matter how you define living. I think the machine fetish is so bizarre. And I wonder if we could pin down what the fetish of our current moment is. But We've we've got in that quotation and and given the prominence of that architect and that school of thinking and design that is I mean you 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 remove you know five names and the twentieth century just looks entirely different you know right. and who knows yeah. what it would be it just kind of vaporizes that's yeah. the kind of influence these people had. And I think that's a powerful reason why we've talked about architecture, because it's easy to take it for granted. It's easy for that as a human series and ecosystem of activities to become invisible and, and be taken for granted. And it's very difficult to see foreground and background in terms of new and emerging architecture coming out of a fabric or matrix of history and historical buildings, what survives and what doesn't, what's imploded mm -hmm. like the Riviera Hotel on the Strip, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. bulldozed and what statues are toppled and what buildings are enshrined and remained and rebuilt like Notre Dame to go back to our discussion about that, you know, a fire. Well, that that's an important enough building to, try to uh, you know repair we don't have even you know some of those skills have been lost but yeah i think that the machine that phrase in that context a machine for living that almost seems like the paradox of the the schismatic culture that we've been looking for the whole time that's right. very close to it absolutely, you know? absolutely. yeah yeah, because, well, I mean, isn't the machine for living the body? Well, that would be, I mean, that is the absolute uh, consequence, extension, implication, connection be between, you know, you have to go there logically. Mm -hmm. And this is, mm -hmm. again, we people in this context 
have made themselves into mechanical systems, mechanical right. entities. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You mentioned earlier what was the what's the current fetish, if not the the machines. I think that now the fetish is the to use a very cool 1970s pulp paperback phrase, it's the the children of the machines, right? Have become the new thing. Okay. And I mean by that, I mean AI, social media, the internet, the web, the network, all of these sorts of things. We're no longer really interested in mechanical processes. I've become interested in them um, because I realized that I wasn't. I started figuring out three weeks ago, and this is my whole YouTube history now, how uh, you know diesel engines work. I just wanted to know. I didn't know. You. And I became Crystal radio right there. Yeah. yeah, I became interested in how those work. They're fucking heavy, dude. They're yeah. huge. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's been able to, like, I've been able to connect with family members now. I have a, a brother-in-law who's a mechanic. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, man, I'm getting into diesel engines. And he's he was like, oh, bro, let me show. He had to take the whole cab off of an F-150 or whatever it was to take the diesel engine out because it's so huge. Anyway, I think that... uh I see this turning ourselves, turning the house into a machine for living. Um, to me, just sort of makes a implies a causality where I don't see one necessarily. Right? You know, it's a machine for living, and I have a problem with with for. I would act, I would agree with the house as a machine. I could see that there's machines all over it and it itself is a machine, but uh, the machine for living aspect of it, I think to your point more speaks to this fact that we have uh, limited ourselves in that way, right? Like in, in just making it, making the house uh, into something that just kind of facilitates still being a house and us still being in the house i'm not sure if i'm making sense anymore so i would appreciate uh, well, you to reel me back in okay well i will i'll um i'll, I'll do a, a chord change and then get i want to get back to uh pitching another uh quotation to you from a very different perspective same time frame i'm going to say that when i ask myself what is our new fetish word uh, I think machine suited a, a particular time, but that's going back now, amazingly, a hundred years ago. Uh, I'm going to say that that what what occurred to me now was system. I think system is one of the most abused words of our current moment, and it's it's even more insidious than machine because I think it's uh, it can move more with greater subtlety. It's clandestine. It's kind of a a ninja word. It's so bland. And yet it appears all the time. And I'm, I'm doing research to see if it is, in fact, as uh, almost ubiquitous, but certainly as abused as I, I suspect it is. But I want to um, get to uh, a couple of, of quotations from Frank Lloyd Wright, because I think he is such an enormous figure in world architecture, but American architecture in particular, the whole Chicago Prairie School and his, his iconic buildings, Falling Water as a House and, and uh, 
the Simon Guggenheim Museum in New York. Uh, and he's from a, a, such a different generation and background than, say, a Frank Geary uh, or some of the really high-flying uh, architects of more recent times or who may still be alive. Um, it's just a great interview uh, that I, I watched on YouTube, and he's he's pretty far along in the whole deal. And I, I won't summarize the dramatic uh, private life that he had. I don't know if you know about that, but uh, adultery, affair, and murder uh, is going on in in that it's it's and it's so counter to his character. It really is very, very strange. I'm I'm waiting for a great uh, movie about his, you know, a, a dramatized movie about his life because his his dress, his demeanor, his very clipped, laconic, uh, midwestern style of speech, everything about him is 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 a paradox. Um, but he said a couple of things that I, I, I love these two quotations before I hit the really big one. Uh, I was, this is, isn't one of the quotations, but I was really surprised, pleased, and I felt I learned something when he says very calmly and uh, matter of factly that what he was, that what he designed he uh, felt and hoped would have about a 300-year lifespan. Now, I think that's a phenomenally interesting comment that I did not know that. I would not have said, you know, I, I was, that really filled in something for me. Um, but here are two others that I think are just kind of wild and aren't, aren't related. He said, if the Greeks had had steel and glass, we'd still be copying them. Secondly, New York City is just an overgrown, crazed village. Okay, now, now and, and with that last quotation, bear in mind again that he was the, the uh, favorite son, protege of Louis Sullivan, the really driving force behind the skyscraper. And he really appreciated Sullivan's work and uh, remained, you know, a faithful uh, descendant, so to speak, although he went totally against that whole framework. So those two quotations, if the Greeks had had glass and steel, we'd still be copying them. New York City is just an overgrown, crazed village. What do you think? I think that's so cool because the first thing that that first quote makes me think of is what are we missing? When people look back on the ruins of Western society, they would say, oh, if only the Americans had had blank, right? Taste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Uh, and in terms of New York being an overgrown village, that's so interesting to me because that, I've never heard that quote before, but as soon as you said it, that immediately 
resonated with every time I've ever visited New York versus a European city or a Korean city. Uh, there really is something about every place you're in in New York being the, I, I was recently talking to a friend of mine, he lives in Baltimore, and he was talking about the the differences between people from Dundalk and, you know, other parts of Baltimore. And I thought it was so interesting that there's this one city where this balkanization has occurred and a city has regions that kind of don't talk to each other. Uh, yes. It, yes. And it's, you know, exactly. And and we try to put a lot of names on that and give that a positive sort of look, but another mm -hmm. way to think of it is, what the hell was that? I don't know. Hang on. I've got Diane's dog here. Just a moment. What was that about? Yeah. You can hear him shaking his things. Sorry about that. Um, no, it's all right. Everything okay? I think so. I don't know. He got a fright, maybe. He's he's older. He can't hear. But I, I maybe he just woke up and wondered what was going on. He seems fine now. I'll show him to you. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's the pig, huh? It is the pig. He almost had a battle with a rattlesnake today. God, that was just, oh, man, that was so tense. <laughs> that was really <laughs> tense. Uh, <laughs> I think I think uh, I'm really interested in what you have to say, but to just to put a point that balkanization uh, is very interesting, and I'm I'm sure it occurs in other places. I know that other cities that I've been to have different districts that uh, you know mean different things. You know, this is the foreigner district. This is, but I wonder if that that kind of separation isn't more village like, right? Because somebody from the Bronx and somebody from Brooklyn don't want you to think that they're from the same place to them. It's a definitely very, not. Definitely it's a not. very different thing. Not to like, not even to bring Manhattan into the, or I mean, Staten Island, Staten Island is like its own country compared to these other places. You know, some people don't think it exists. <laughs> I know it exists because I'm, I know it exists because I'm a Wu-Tang Clan fan. So I know a lot about Staten Island from their albums, but, yeah. uh, that definitely does lend itself to the, the 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 village aspect, and I think here's an interesting thought: as a exporter and exporter of culture and attitude and style, uh, New York's villageness might be integral to that. Right? People who you know who live in New York, they have a a kind of uh, a vibe to them. Like most people who are very successful on Twitter are from New York City, some part of New York City. I didn't know that. Yeah, most of them. That's good are, folklore anyway. I don't know yeah. if that's really true. Yeah. Oh, it's a it's a hundred percent true. Not really? LA, LA is for Instagram and TikTok, but Twitter is New Yorkers for the most part. You social media guru, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, and there may be many reasons for that. I mean, you know, that's where the New York, the New York Times is and where, you know, 
a lot of bands get started there, but I also wonder there's a, there's an affect that a place like that has that feels very gossipy and disaffected and village-like perhaps. Now, um, do you see a connection between those two quotes between the steel quote, if they'd only had glass and steel and New York being a village? Is there something that connects those two in your mind? Oh, we've frozen, haven't we? Not sure what happened here. I still have my power. Still have my internet. Well, I guess it's just me here now. Hello, lost explorers. It's just David. The less interesting half of this. Hope oh, I'm getting a call from Chris. Hey, you're on Lost Explorers. What's up? My computer just stopped. I'm, I'm trying to get back on. I don't know what happened. <laughs> I believe we're getting into Mercury retrograde, but um, I've, I've got you. I've got we're we're still we're still recording. So if you want, this might actually be fun. Okay, you're coming back now. Yes. <laughs> What you were saying about having too many uh, programs open, Mike. Um, how do I get back? Oh, everything is going wild. Yeah. It's like everything's jumping up and doing like incredibly strange things. Yeah, I think we might have entered it. We might have entered into a high weirdness tunnel for the next few weeks between my storms and your. Your your stories. Man. By the way, just be before you say anything, uh, this is all going into my mic, just so you know. <laughs> and how do I get back to this meeting? You should be able to follow the same link that I sent you in the email. Okay, I'll do that. This is That's right. I'm going to leave all of this in as well. Yeah. Okay, so I should be. Oh, yeah, I see you. You're in the waiting room. Okay. No worries. All right. I'm in the waiting room. You're in the waiting room. All right. Okay, okay, I'm back. I'm I went off the <laughs> zone. Architecture is about okay. I'm going to hang up the phone because I'm doubling up. <laughs> oh, that was look. You know, this is exactly what we're talking about, Carlos. You know, <laughs> synchronicity. 
we <laughs> just happen worlds overlap uh we thought my power was gonna go out yeah and i have no idea what it was it it, it was obviously uh it looked like some one of these weird computer update things that just mm-hmm. happens to you mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. could happen with a neural implant you know imagine mm-hmm. those that's what we're we're headed for uh, i think that we've gone down the belly of a cosmic serpent right now and we're in a we're in a tunnel of high weirdness at the moment. You are at least, and it's rubbing off over here as well. I would say that, it, that things have been strange here as well. Not as strange as some of the stories that you've told me, but um, what was the last thing you heard me say before you got cut off? It was right mid-sentence, I think. Um and then I got hit with this flurry of screens. So I'm battling through those. Uh... Well, I was still thinking about, I, I, I'm going to answer it this way because I, I want to get back to a point that you, you mentioned earlier that I think is really important. And you, uh, you used a term, you've used it before. I really like it. I'm going to, uh, I, I haven't used it so much myself, but I think I'm going to balkanization, balkanization yeah. of cities into, and we were talking about Staten Island and whether or not it really exists outside of television. And uh, maybe, you know, the little glitch is an example of that, that, you know, we need to, uh, to think about intermittence as maybe one of the conditions, a quantum condition of uh, appearance and existence at all, periods of, of strange intermittence, you know. But uh, I like your uh, the tunnel of high tunnels of high weirdness. That could be a good uh, episode thing. Um, but if we look at the balkanization of, say, a city. That's the you know the the analogy you you put forward, but we could say balkanization of anything, but as opposed to atomization or the mosaicing or fragmentation of something, uh, linking that to my concern about the word system being the new fetish word idea uh, of of our time, the post culture era. Uh, as opposed to the modernist idea of the machine. How do you think that balkanization could be understood in a more organic sense that even if it is sort of that awful word system, which is so misunderstood, but some sort of relationship, because I mean, if you talk to certain like city officials or you read certain things, the diversity, this balkanization is really, you know, everyone thinks it's a good thing. But, well, it's not. I mean, in many ways, you could argue that it's based on a history of race and class problems, certainly economic problems. uh, Or you could just accept that that's how things higgledy piggledy change shape. I mean, it it really it I can see I can see ways in which that is a terrible thing and ways in which that is just a cool thing and the middle ground where that's just how it happens. 
You just, <laughs> you know, you just see it that way. But if we did sort of freeze frame the balkanized state of, of the major cities that we, you know, with, with really famous neighborhoods and boundary lines that we know, how do you actually conceptualize uh, the relationship between them? I mean, other than people passing through physically and you know, via transport, subway, bus, car, uh, intentional visit, or maybe just passing through, uh, that to me doesn't necessarily equate to interaction, you know? Uh, I see that where neighborhoods are more symbiotic and organic, I see that on For listeners, Chris has frozen again. It appears as though his computer is having some problems. And I did have... Oh, you're back. Yeah. God, you went into a weird... You went into like... Time zone. (laughs) We're getting close to something. This is how you know we're getting close to something. Yeah. I have some some thoughts. You were mentioning uh, what is the relationship besides them just passing through. I like the idea of of balkanization as a process of uh, mythologizing the same, right? So the, nice. the the real difference between a person who lives in Queens and a person who lives in Brooklyn is very small, very small. Outside of all, you know, cultural differences, whatever, day-to-day life, catching a train, the architecture, the places they live in, they're all very similar. Balkanization is for uh, <clears throat> the the initial part of it would would be to have some kind of jingoistic uh, community centered sense of identity and self, but it's really different than that. It's entirely a process of otherization in which for entertainment and for uh, the development of a cohesive mythology of the outside world, the outside world being not five miles from your doorstep, it really hinges on intensifying the otherization of those around you, right? In a jokey way, sometimes in a derisive way, but ultimately in a mythological way. So as to, uh, uh, I I think so as to alleviate the the fundamental sameness of those 40 square miles i i i think the the way you phrase that is is uh is very clear and 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 very helpful uh i think that otherization process i mean that and that this is a problem that people have with the whole concept of identity today which is another crucial fetish of our time is that it is uh, it's foregrounded background it's inside outside mm-hmm. the prepositional mm-hmm. distance in yeah. order to be i me she right. her they them you know there has to be that otherization of of mm-hmm. some and it, it creates right. you know 
it, it, yeah. it, it creates its own structural prepositional distance that needs mm-hmm. to be negotiated in some way. But it can be really problematic because people are wanting to just deny that that process of yeah. authorization and, and foreground mm-hmm. and background. They, they're at war with the basic structure, the basic architecture of perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the great gift of perspective is that you have an object or subject of vision, but it's very tricky to escape the subject object yeah. uh, relationship and oscillation. And then if you refuse to accept that that oscillation is just what's happening and groove with that and, and kind of make that map space Mm-hmm. within yourself your consciousness to allow for that and even to celebrate it or at least to just well why not celebrate it because it's fundamental elemental mm-hmm. inescapable mm-hmm. if you start to then be at war with that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. then you create a hierarchy of conflict for yourself you know you really mm-hmm. start going up a very strange staircase that you're creating in a very crazy machine to think back on this idea of a machine for living. I cannot get past the cuckoo clock. I think one of the strangest <laughs> creations, I mean, I, I have a fetish for cuckoo clocks. I think I love a, cuckoo clocks too. I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I think they're completely perverse. I want to see some <laughs> really, really bizarre ones. I think they figure into the weird Swiss mindset. You know, these are the people who wear lederhosen, blow giant yeah. alpenhorns, and are really into avalanche control. Uh, a very, very strange national strange. culture, strange. you know, trilingual, uh, but unified in a Swissness that mm-hmm. comes to uh, the four in terms of timepieces, which is a very strange form of architecture to specialize in. That's their, their gig. Yeah. Well, the, the self is defined by its boundaries, right. And vice versa, I think. And I think that the alternative to doing that, to defining the self based on what it, both what on it, what it is and what it isn't, is to go back to the beginning of the podcast when you were talking about having that that blank space in the map. That's the third thing. That's the mm-hmm. go move that beats the AI computer, right? Like you're yeah. not you and you're also not what you aren't. You're the this other floating cloud of ants. Maybe I like ants. <laughs> I'll go with ants. It's a nice emblematic thing. I mean, and I think people can picture it on a, you know, faded, you know, 19th century British map. You know, it has all the colonial baggage to it, but it has the adventure search expansion of human boundary. You know, it's got all of the conflict there. But I, 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 I'm glad you dig that as a, as an idea that unexplored terrain, because it, it completely resolves the problem that Henri Bergson put forward, which we've devoted time to, of the negation and how to, how impossible it is to determine the content of a negative idea. Mm-hmm. You know, it's mm-hmm. like a, it's like a, 
a Zen sort of riddle. You know, it just, you either embrace that or you don't. You know, you either understand like the sound of one hand clapping, which has unfortunately become a, a cliche. Mm-hmm. That whole kind of thinking and all it's artistic and musical and intellectual and fashion and architecture, all of the things that move in that world just become either invisible or structurally monolithic for certain people. And mm-hmm. I think that they they are just completely hemmed in by that. Yeah. And yeah. Oddly enough, I think this is what Frank Lloyd Wright and the the shift from kind of what what part of modernist architecture that became brutalism and started to lose uh, any sense of organic connection to site you know, as in mm-hmm. the site of, of the buildings. Uh, Wright went down that path of, and he says this, the, the you know, the, the goal was to destroy the box as a building and to really interrogate the boundary between inside and outside and that was possible with you know more windows with a different structure so that you didn't have load-bearing walls uh necessarily you know you really con- you controlled the structuring to maximize the management and orchestration in a musical sense the orchestration of light and flow of space and we get I mean, in in its worst case scenario, I think we get the business corporate notion of the open plan, you know, which seemed like a break from the rabbit warrens, except that nobody had any privacy. And it it really, it's been a failure in, in many corporate, it just depends on how many people are working. And we can go back to like the 1950s and look at, you know, corporate offices there, the typing pool, remember those? And there's a great scene in Orson Welles' version of the trial. I mean, that's open plan, man, but it is so factory machine, hive, termite-minded. It It's it's just alienating to watch mm-hmm. and yet weirdly fascinating in its machine-like components. So, but to destroy the box as a building was what Wright in his particular uh, time, the peak of his, his power and influence, that was what he thought he was doing. And as an extension of that, he, he suggests in a kind of a weird, to my mind, he triggered a strange connection with Jim Morrison because Jim Morrison makes some very prescient comments about where music is going, you know, and how music might relate to, how it needs to relate to culture in the future. Wright closes off the interview saying that the challenge is to clearly see for yourself, for oneself, what is the principal problem of your time that relates to your skills, your vision, 
you know, there, there are going to be many at any given point, but what, you know, what addresses your particular aptitudes, your shining characteristics, or maybe just shining characteristics, to use a phrase from last time. And I think that is a trick. That really is the trick. And I would suggest and kind of maybe beginning to uh, wind up the architecture question is, I don't think that we have a clear vision of what our, I mean, I think beyond green, we definitely sort of want green, but we don't even know if we need city buildings, skyscrapers anymore, are people, you know, working remotely. We've got people camped out in the street and a complete failure of affordability and access and equity at a time when equity is the big thing. It's getting worse and worse in, in, in our major cities, you know, it's just out of control. And I also think just in closing that it's, uh, it's not surprising to me when you look at some of the people who are say the top 10, top 20 architects of the 20th century. So the modernist era into the postmodernist era, they really are male. It's a male dominated, in, you know, it's changing. But on the other hand, I would argue that our society is, is really anti a lot of the values that they put forward. Mm -hmm. and, and I think they're anti-masculine in that sense. And I think that is part of the problem of our time of not being sure who we are and what our uh, beyond the environmental crisis, I don't think there's really a clear sense of what problems architects would be called on to solve. And therefore, what what are the problems, you know, yeah. culturally that we could all look at? So what do you think of that? Oh, man, I had so many thoughts. It's a bit of a ramble. I'm sorry, but I think that there was no, 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 no. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Uh, first of all, the box and the build, separating the box from the building, moving beyond the box from the building. <clears throat> I love that quote, but I'm thinking more in terms of our unknown territory. So, what's mm -hmm. the third thing? And when it when it comes to the the masculine element of architecture and the fact that that is not something that we see today i think that is a real fun it's a fundamental problem that people are going to have to learn how to actually talk about without getting so mad that they can't have the conversation because uh, as you were talking about the 10 best architects, I had this idea in my head that if I Googled that right now, I'd be taken to a list that was half women and half men. And the men would be the people who made the Empire State Building and the World Trade Center. And then the, the women would be like, you know, look at this koi pond and this garden. <laughs> and they would be put on the same list. So I think that's something that has to be definitely reckoned with i think that um in terms of what problems architects could solve that set me off on a 
path thinking about homeless people because you mentioned them. And uh, specifically, whenever the problem of, home of homelessness is raised, uh, it's always in terms of, oh, put, we'll put them in houses. Well, they don't want to be in houses. Right. They want to be on the streets and do drugs. But that could be a problem that an architect could solve. What does that structure look like? Do they, do they look like tunnels? Do they look like, you know, kind of outdoor, you know, drug areas that are, you know, uh, tinted so that people can't see inside of them? Maybe that might actually like the homeless problem could be an architectural one. Um, Beautifully put, beautifully put. I'm so glad. And I, I was, you know, I think we were meandering towards this. And I think that is exactly right. I think that is exactly right. And if that's not the problem, it's a crucial problem of our time. Yeah, right. High enough on the on the priority list to, uh, you know, I think it's well said. Well Thanks. done. Yeah. But other than that, I like the way you wrap that up. I think that was really good. I think that was a good series. And I have a couple of uh, reading suggestions. The Decorated Diagram is an important book. And A Pattern Language by Christopher mm. Alexander. You yep. may, yeah, that that's, I think, that's much more broad ranging. Uh, but I think it, it's like uh, metaphors we live by. It, it's just one of those essential uh, books to understand culture and the relationship between the individual psyche and, and societal structures. And the very peculiar idea of pattern, you know, the deep, mm -hmm. deep underlying thing of, of novelty versus pattern, uh, the emergence and disappearance of energy in certain forms cool stuff all right are we uh is it time for some electric knowing yeah let's do electric knowing okay this is always a challenge when i do this because i have to read my own handwriting oh i hear that jeez <laughs> god okay so we are struck by lightning and we can suddenly read each other's thoughts what ensues from there is a, a very standard, bog standard, what women want style comedy where we're hearing each other's thoughts and, you know, mine are very base and uh, animalistic and hers are much more emotional. But then we start getting actually into the cool stuff, into the meat of it, right? Okay. And uh, I start to notice things about her that I didn't notice before some deeper thoughts. And Ooh. she starts to notice something deeper about me. Things she didn't know about me. And right when we get to that point, a man shows up at our door, he knocks at our door and he's holding an orb. And he says, you have to pay attention. What has happened to you has happened before and it will happen again. But if you're ever to read each other's thoughts again, you must both be holding the orb right and so we say okay we'll hold the orb so we do it and that energy that we have between each other uh 
the mind reading, the electric knowing that does not allow us to reach, read our thoughts at the same time, when put together, creates a kind of energy. So we become fascinated by this energy because it gives us superpowers. We can run faster. We can lift heavier things. We can think better. And so when we're not touching the orb, we start to see different things in each other. So what I see when I look into her mind, I see deep thoughts about the nesting habits of condors. I see the magic of eating dirt. I see detailed plans for visiting Yellowstone, including what to do in the event of bear attacks. And I see schematics about the perfect Korean crime novel. When she looks in my mind, she sees the interior of a 1988 Honda CRX. It's been tuned up really nice. She sees Chinese cultivation novels. She sees my fascination with the phenomena of Tibetan uh, magician monks selling curses online. And she sees me wondering about whether or not AI has become horny yet. So once we know each other very deeply, we touch the orb and we start to try to read each other's minds. And that energy forms like the two Tron motorcycles, blue and red, and it goes into a source and we feel this incredible power. Thunder starts to rumble around us, lightning strikes, the earth shakes, and we see images in our mind, a melding of our minds, if you will. So I see this blending between a Nordic Viking and an Aztec warrior, right? So it's a Viking with cool runic tattoos, but an Aztec headdress. I see the Aztec pyramids covered in snow, and I see a Viking longship stuck in the branches of Amazonian rainforest trees. And then when all of that image, all those images come together and all that power has been consolidated, the man who gave us the orb comes back and asks for the orb back. And so we give it to him. And when we ask him what he's been doing here, he says, oh, I'm in control of the weather. The end. Wow, I think that was just sublime, a tour de force. I mean, that might be my all-time favorite so far of all your responses. Wow, I thought that cool. was just I thought that was really, really enjoyable to listen to. And I thought that the look inside each other's minds was a beautiful inventory of strange, just very poetic. I thought that was just just really enjoyable to uh to listen to i love the chord changes i i think that was uh a really cool thing and if it were to be transcribed just on what you did you know as a pure real-time uh improvisation whether or not you thought of any of those things before the imagery the the collision of of, of the viking and the aztec thing i just saw that so vividly i think that would be a beautiful uh well it could be a strange hybrid creation of if you found mm -hmm. a good collaborator to do a, a short graphic novel it could be really rich and hip and cool and edgy and strange and fun and but it, it's also implicitly a wonderful allegory about a successful marriage, you mm, know, mm -hmm. a really intimate marriage. Mm -hmm. 
you've, you've, for, for me, you've put, uh, without, you know, looking too deep into the physical, sexual, erotic intimacy, you've sketched out a, a, just a wonderful expanding playground map of what intimacy in a couple might be and, and how that, you know, there really is that dynamic. It's not just the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. That old saying of, of two people really together are an army, you know, that really is true. And it's just deeply mysterious. And it might have had a great impact on the whole uh, magical nature of, of mathematics, because it is very mysterious. Be mm -hmm. But we all know that two against each other uh, can be just a living hell and not living maybe for very long. You know, mm -hmm. and that's where a lot of great crime stories from the myths to, you know, uh, noir, pulp fiction and crime novels to murder today on New York Post style. Two people against each other. Hell, two people together, an army. But just a lovely flow of, of images. I thought that was just outstanding. Just cool. outstanding. I'm glad you liked it. Do you have a tool and a tip for us today? I do. I do. And uh, if we do just, you know, hearkening uh, back to our theme of, of architecture, if we did want to look at any further things there, uh, we mentioned kit homes the last time of Sears and Roebuck and Montgomery Wards and some of those 1930s, 1940s uh, products. I think there's a lot to be said there. And that also ties into uh, the whole notion of architecture and its relationship to the middle class. Is it something that even relates to the middle class uh, on any kind of residential level, or is it only in public buildings and on a giant scale? But anyway, here's the tool. I wrote this down and uh, then I started to unpack it. And I'm not saying, you know, sometimes you just got to write something down and then you, then you can think more fully about it. I wrote, music has three points of ancient origin. Imitation of animals, especially birds, responses to weather, and the desire to step outside time. And music has, of course, a great deal to do with tempo and rhythm. And melody and harmony are all driven by the sense of, of time. So I started thinking about that. I thought, well, there's something interesting with that idea. And it ties in with our notion of houses as, the, as time shelters. And we've talked about the, the time zone that everyone wants to live in is the hardest one to find. That's a psychogeography thing that's just so important. Um, so I started to think, well, if we were to pay a little bit of extra attention to those moments and activities where we're trying to step outside time, I think what we'd find is that we'd be really looking at the things we most enjoy, but also those moments where we really are, you know, where we really are who we are, you know, that's, that identity 
is is a location and a coordinate in time as well and it's that's those moments where we've kind of stepped outside of time or have stepped into a more uh a congruency with our deepest self you know mm-hmm. and we're not on someone else's time i mean think of that expression whose time are you on you know that kind of not just the commodification and commercialization of it, but that deeper, all of the things that the, the, the house's time shelter is meant to shield us from or give us, you know, a little bit more control over. So that's my tool. Just, it's a little, it comes down to some journaling of where we, we hit a moment where we're really, we we have the you know as Heraclitus and uh, Baudelaire said those moments of uh, being like a child at play. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's kind of a cool thing with Gus's birthday coming up. You know tomorrow that um, yeah. who who are you when you step outside of time is a is a cool line. Yeah, <laughs> you step outside of the flow. Who's there? Who's doing the thinking? Um, and then who's thinking about that thinking? Yeah, yeah. And okay, well, I'm glad you liked it. And here's the, the tip is is fairly straightforward, but it again focuses on it, it's on language. And I, I thought to myself, try to avoid using words metaphorically unless you really and alertly intend to. You know, I think that's really a way, uh, it's a discipline and it's a practice and things become a bit more vivid to pick up on a crucial word from last episode. Uh, and I'll, I'll just give an example here, which I'm, I'm consciously playing with in, in a fun sense, but in a, uh, a, a discipline sense. Substitute for words such as true or truth. What about accuracy instead? To be accurate mm. or accuracy. I think wow. that. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. I, I nailed I, it. You fucking nailed it with that one. I thank you. I think it's really helpful. I really <laughs> do. I really <laughs> do. It's so simple, but you completely nailed it. What I've heard so many uh, podcasts and news stories about misinformation ministry of truth we have to figure out what the truth is well what's the truth what truly happened what really accuracy we've instantly got a spectrum you know we've broken things up it's not a static it's not an either thing you know we stack accuracy accuracy implies accuracy implies a target and it it implies that you're you maybe not be on target truth is much more this is the yes truth. absolutely you, you never absolutely. you never say this is the accuracy right right exactly well said that's that's exactly the utility of it that is so smart that's so good i'm glad you dig it i think that that it i i hope that really will be helpful for people because the the word substitution technique is so powerful and you know you can do a lot of things with simple tools think of all the things mm-hmm. you can do with a hammer you know, it it, it doesn't <laughs> yeah. need to be a complicated thing to to uh, really have a great deal of utility and range. And uh, okay, and it's sort of um, 
I guess because I, I was really in a in a language sort of groove, uh, my dream, a crucial takeout, and we've said, uh, both of us have noticed the importance of language that survives waking in dreams. Yeah. yeah. It's a very strange phrase. It, it was associated with some very complicated visuals that kind of picked up on uh, the balkanization, mosaicing, fragmentation sort of themes that we've been talking about. The line was, questions become patchwork cups. And I think that's that's very, uh, I, there's something about that that I like. I don't know what it means. It, it I've lost, I have a dim sense of the visual analog support for that from the dream but it would really be abstract if i tried to you know draw or paint that or was this something that was said to you or the yes the the the, oh it was said to you okay yes so it's it's and that's often what i find is 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 uh that of the words that i they appear to be from another character another perspective another point of view but uh Here's an extended bit, which I think is uh, would be a cool uh, little film to make. And I think it is very filmic. And I think it's also um, strangely coherent. It's one of those dreams that you think, oh, this person is a writer or someone who's very sensitive to the, the making of films and games and, and scenarios. But... In the dream, I'm I, I go out with uh, some people. They're kind of a little bit. They're friends, but sort of. It's just a group. It's a little bit unfocused. But we're playing uh, a really uh, heavily hyped new VR game that has a post-apocalyptic theme. So it's totally immersive, and we're there in it. And the graphics are very good. One of the cool images I like. There's uh, they're kind of knights. Knights of like the ransom jousting on motorcycles. So it's got a kind of, of slick upgrade of, of Mad Max things. And now it's playing on, now we're talking. Yeah, it's playing on a lot of, of these tropes, but beautifully blended. And really, uh, all of the work has gone into the rendering artistically, not the conceptual oddities of it. But out of that, there are some really interesting things that have emerged. But strangely, in in the background, in a kind of Cirque du Soleil sense, you know, they have these great spectaculars with all these things happening. And you sometimes don't even notice this one actor or performer or talent, you know, who's just a very minor figure, but doing something amazing, you know, because it's this crazy cuckoo clock performance in front of you. Well, in the background, in several scenes, I notice a woman who does not fit into the scene, even though she's just a completely minor character. Nothing happens, but I just notice her. She's curiously out of place. She's red-haired, wearing a blue suit. And the suit might have been something, you know, in, in style, a woman's suit, who knows where that that would have gone back to mid mid 20th century it, it's been updated but it, it it's weird it doesn't sort of seem right and as we leave the game i ask one of the people i'm with 
if they noticed that woman and nobody did. And mingling out into the world of the strip, which I have to say seems to me, uh, it may crank up with summer weather coming on. It seems very different than it used to. I don't know if that's COVID related or not. I just, maybe it's me. I've been away from for a while. I start to see this woman on the real streets of Vegas and around my life. And I get a call from one of the people who was in the game with me. And they say, you know, there's some kind of infection that people are talking about, you know, from this game. And I wake up on that note and I think, you know, I feel like I really have seen that movie. It seems like so many, and not just William, it just seems like so many things. Mm. Yet it had a reality purely because of this woman. It had some interest. And I thought that was the strange thing I woke up on, that all of the, you know, the mohawk-haired, you know, people with all these, you know, cuttings and weird tattoos and flamethrowers, all of that furnishing of the post-apocalyptic theme park uh, spectacle was completely eclipsed by something enormously ordinary and if in any way iconic would have been anachronistic in the sense of really linking back to, I think, mid-century modern America, you know? I think she is real. Ah, okay. I think she is real. And I'll tell you why. Last time when we talked, I had a weird acid trip around your dream time. And, uh, I had another one when you were talking about this dream. Ooh. So I don't know what's going on. I don't know if this is just some kind of like, uh, you know, what careless kind of feckless, you know, uh, ideation about what's going on. But I think something is, and I, I wanted to specifically point it out because uh, just in case this is leading up to something, but it happened again when you were describing this woman where I was all of a sudden with her and she was real. We were in a kind of atrium, a stony atrium with the sun. Maybe, maybe it was about, you know, four o'clock in June. So a lot of shadows and I could just, I could smell her and I could, see the colors very vividly so i think that i think that she might just actually be real far out far out well i think we're on a groove you know because the experience you're describing and i have that sometimes when you've with your imaginative challenge not, i certainly did absolutely mm-hmm. i did mm-hmm. i mean uh this is the power and the magic of language and it's the the enjoyment of practicing thinking and storytelling together that is mm-hmm. so powerful. And this is the, the greatest psychic defense against the algorithmic yeah. uh, mindset 
And I agree. But you know people, what I mean? You, you know what I mean when you drop from one dimension of reality to another? Yeah. It's it's oh, it's, it's it's when the shrooms kick in or when the acid yeah. kicks in or whatever. It's that that feeling of dropping, like whoosh. Oh, things are different now. Yeah. And as you were describing that, I would want to uh you know as you go to sleep tonight i want to hear more from this woman because i feel like i'm gonna go looking i'm she gonna go looking message. yeah no i i absolutely think that i think there's no question i i have no idea I'm, and i'm i'm really open uh and this is why i'm hopeful about the the search is that I'm really open for whatever message it is. I have no preconceptions whatsoever. It's a completely... Feels important, though. Yeah, well, th- this could be a spirit, a demon, an angel. We don't know, but you, you've got to find out because if, if, connect- if she's visiting you and then through your recounting, giving me this kind of, uh, you know, transport, transportation to another dimension style feeling she must be important yeah oh no i i absolutely i no question i that's my deep intuitive feeling no question no question all right yeah all right that'll do it okay thanks everyone be safe be sensible and see you next time that was great